think it should just be me eating a chip for the intro. <laughs> Welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate Kiriakou. And I'm Molly Fox. And I was writing something, which is why that took me a second to say, <laughs> like I forgot my own name. She knows how she is, people. Leave her alone. Yeah, give me a fucking break. It's been a <laughs> week. <laughs> Lemon, it's a Tuesday. Um... And today we are going over the book Rednecks, Queers, and Country Music by Nadine Hubs. And uh, we're really excited about it because Kate and I both love country music. Yes, unashamed love of country music, for sure. Uh, I'm a little ashamed. (laughs) Fine. Uh, Mine is unashamed. (laughs) Molly is always a little ashamed of something. Don't worry, that's the evangelicalism talking. That's just a part of how it works. Uh, But yeah, I think we mentioned this partially in the last episode or two episodes ago now. I don't know. I'm getting mixed up with the episodes that we both grew up in mostly rural areas in Ohio. Uh, I grew up in a town of 8,000 people, I think is what it is. I don't know. Very small. And I grew up on a farm. So I am definitely familiar with country music, although obviously we are not from the South. So, you know, I live on the West Coast now and I've had people tell me that Ohio is the East Coast. It is not. Oh, my God. I've had people tell me that Ohio is the South because at a grocery store on the almost Kentucky border, they went in and there was sweet tea. Therefore, it's the South. It is not the South. Uh Everyone has told me that Ohio is everything other than what it is, which is the Midwest. And if you disagree, you can go fuck yourself. I don't care. Rant over. Okay, I had a conversation with a coworker once where she was from Iowa and determined to tell me that Ohio was not from in the Midwest and it didn't fit in that. And I looked up the census and showed her that, yes, it does count as the Midwest. And she was still adamant that it counts as, like, the East Coast or the Mid-Atlantic. The only one that I will, like, agree to is if you break it up, like, Pennsylvania East is the East. Then the Ohio, Michigan, uh, some of Illinois, etc., like, is the Great Lakes region. Fine. That mm-hmm. is a slightly different, unique Sarah, thing. Yes. Although I would argue that Ohio doesn't really fit that as much as it fits the Midwest. Yeah, like, I it, agree. Uh, and I always say to people, I'm like, what I am talking about is specifically culturally. It is culturally the Midwest. Geographically... It is, it is also the Midwest, but culturally, <laughs> don't fucking tell me it's the East Coast or the South. Are you? Yes, it's just the Midwest, okay? We can kidding me? <laughs> By any metric, it is the Midwest. Nadine Hubs comes in and she's like, this has nothing to do I with know, the I know, she's book. like, we didn't talk about geography in this book at all. <laughs> you shut up. <laughs> you should have validated us. Uh, that's me screaming at every author of every book I've ever read. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, let me start out with a quick caveat that this book was not Molly and I's favorite book. And so we 
are going to tell you why and tell you why we didn't feel like the book worked very well for us. But I want to present the arguments that the author puts forth and let you know what she thought she was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then we'll get into why that didn't exactly work for us. But I don't want to start just by our commentary of that because I think that'll be a little bit confusing. So let me start with our summary. This week we are discussing Rednecks, Queers, and Country Music by Nadine Hubs. Hubs is a professor of women's studies and music at the University of Michigan. Her thesis in this book hinges on two main arguments. The first is that the middle class is the cultural default and controls our society's cultural norms and cultural capital. Cultural capital, in other words, is the social assets that promote social mobility. In an effort to distance themselves from the white working class, the white middle class largely paints the working class as uneducated, bigoted, and immoral when judged against middle class values. The white middle class then labels the white working class as responsible for all America's social and political ills, a cultural judgment that Hubs represents through the middle class's harsh loathing of country music. To editorialize a little bit, this is the argument Molly and I both felt came through most strongly in her writing. And the second argument, which we felt was less keen, was that white working class gender and sexuality perceptions are not prejudiced, as the white middle class perceives them to be, but rather class-specific and make sense in relation to the values and norms of the white working class culture. In other words, it's because the working class is always being judged against the values of the middle class that they always come up lacking, not because they are inherently deficient. As a case study for this point, she points to two songs, Gretchen Wilson's Redneck Woman and David Allen Coe's song, Fuck Anita Bryant. She further asserts that while the middle class portrays sex and gender deviance as new social advances encouraged by the middle class, this sex-gender deviance has only recently moved out of a century-long period of forced allyship with the white working class. With that, I want to jump right into our key takeaways because I think we both have quite a bit we want to touch on and comment on in terms of these arguments. So I will start with my key takeaway. It seems like there was a huge missed opportunity in this book that I'd like to talk about because my key takeaway is that the book had great potential but did not capitalize on that potential. Mm -hmm. I know a key takeaway should be something I took away from the book, (laughs) but in this case, I think a glaring omission is what I kept coming back to and thinking about most after I was done reading it. So I want to share that in the intro of the book, she talks about how she wants to focus on top 40 country songs which is fine, but she doesn't do that. (laughs) She often (laughs) pulls on country music that is definitely not top 40. She talks about Johnny Cash. She talks about Loretta Lynn. She talks about, she does not talk about Dolly Parton, which is really upsetting Crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Straight up rude. And that was my, the first thing I took offense of in this book. (laughs) Um, But I think the other part of this book that I had a huge problem with was that she did not address the music of a song. The only thing that she focused on was the lyrics. And there was no recognition that sometimes people listen to music because they like it musically rather than lyrically. And often, that's the first reason that we listen to any given song or band. So I think if she had focused on what she laid out in the introduction in that if she had focused on the actual musical elements of top 40 country songs in America, 
through the lens of class and cultural capital. It would have been a phenomenal book. <laughs> and I will tell you why I think that. Uh, American Top 40 of Country is quite musically similar to pop music, and therefore would underscore her point that distinctions between working class and middle class whites are arbitrary. And it would underscore her point that taste is collective and class-based, because if you look at them, they're musically very, very similar. And so what you would be taking issue with as a white middle-class person would not be that it's not your musical style. It would be that you don't like the values they're singing about, which is what the point she's trying to make is. Well, I think the point she's trying to make is that although the, the middle class point to the lyrics and, and that sort of thing being bigoted, if you look at them within the context of working class values, they aren't. Mm-hmm. And and we lack the context in order to understand that, like as a middle class person. But that that gets lost in what she is is saying because her arguments get so like they rabbit trail. Like they're like, what is happening here? So you talk about the top forty songs, and when I saw that in the introduction too, I was like, hmm, I don't think that makes sense to me because what I I think what would have made this book phenomenal is because she was so clearly interested in the class dynamics which are interesting and worth dissecting through a lens or by using country music in some way because those that offers a very glaring distinction between working class values and interests and middle class but one like you say Kate that once you dig down to it you're like actually this is the same thing (laughs) but if she had gone back to much older origins of country and found what, how did this genre start? What were the interests and values that began it? What were the musical styles that influenced it? And then use that to like demonstrate how that is still seen in country music today. And even though like that, this kind of top 40 stadium country music, it's sometimes called, is considered like less good and less authentic you would be able to see the way the themes have continued throughout the evolution of the genre. And she could have continued the argument of like those themes and values have a lot of importance within the working class culture. Yeah. But she didn't do either what I'm suggesting or what you're suggesting. Instead, she picked like fairly obscure songs at times, ones that when they weren't obscure, the argument she was making about the song didn't hold water at all, which I will talk about in great detail when we go into Gretchen Wilson's Redneck Woman, because my god, do I have a bone to pick with that argument. <laughs> like, <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> Excuse me. I also have a bone to pick with that argument, but it's a different bone. Oh, so okay. I'm looking forward to discussing that. So that, our discussion of like her interest in class goes into my key takeaway, which um, I think like you said, the thing that resonated with me the most, that I agreed with the most, and I felt was the best supported throughout the book, was how she describes the way the middle class was developed as superior to and different from working and lower classes. And they, the middle class used that distance to create their own unique identity. And because of that distance and the way that they are constantly trying to define themselves against the working class, 
the middle class lacks the value system and the context with which to critique country music or to understand and appreciate it. So all of this, like anything but country rhetoric that she talks about in the book and that I think many of us are aware of in society, it comes from a place where you wouldn't be able to appreciate the values of country music anyway. I was raised upper middle class. That said, because I was raised in that context, it's not that I can't, I do appreciate the values of country music, but when we as a middle class people are critiquing the fact that country music has misogyny embedded in it, uh, sexism, racism, homophobia embedded in many of its values and themes, that's, I'm not saying that because I lack the context to appreciate the value system. I'm pointing out the fact that their value system does not recognize that something is sexist or racist or homophobic. And, and you can't tell me that I am incorrect in that because I don't understand their value system. What I am saying is the value system is not correct. <laughs> Um, I was going to give you a round of applause, but I thought that would be too irritating during an audio <laughs> format. Uh, but I would like to dive into that. One of the things that you bring up here is that she talks about the working, white working, and I should say that she only talks about white working class people in this book, uh, which I also found a little bit problematic just in terms of her language because she never, there are a lot of times where she just uses the term working class as a substitute for white working class. Yes. And I think she should have specified a little bit more frequently that she was talking about white working class people because a lot of mm -hmm. working class people are not white. Uh, so that was important to me and I think an important critique. Mm -hmm. But one of the things she talks about when she's talking about the values of the white working class is this need uh, for people to walk the walk. And that comes out in terms of being kind of authentic to yourself and doing what you say you're going to do and coming through for your friends mm -hmm. in terms of material services. And I agree that that is a great value of white working class people. Mm -hmm. While I did not grow up in a white working class home, I grew up in a an upper middle class home in a white working class area. And so I'm very familiar with the values because the value system was the same for my household, even though we were on a different economic yeah. uh, level or, or situation. And yeah. so part of the problem with walking the walk is that it's often co-opted to justify sexism and victim blaming and being a tease and not needing explicit consent, mm -hmm. all of which are absolutely 100% found in country music. Because yeah. the idea of walking the walk is that you're always going to come through and do the things that you either say you're going to do or that someone else reads into your actions. And if it's a man reading into a woman's nonverbal actions, that can often lead to men believing that they can do what they are perceiving out of the situation rather than getting explicit consent from a woman. It also leads to a lot of uh, victim blaming in the sense of, well, she was wearing XYZ, what did she expect kind of thing. Yeah. So I find that to be very true to my experience. Yeah. Maybe that's a little bit sensitive to what she was saying, but I think that that's very prevalent in country music and she never addresses it 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. And she talks about this thing a lot that she refers to as hillbilly humanism, which is not a concept that she developed, but it's one of one of the scholars that she talks about has coined this term to describe the value system and um, the themes that you find in country music. The hillbilly humanism can be understood as like, there's they value hard work, loyalty to family and oneself as an individual, um, treating each other as equals, like this live and let live mentality, which while I agree you absolutely find that in country music, there is an unspokenness to it that's like live and let live as long as you are living your life in the way that we say that you should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, well, that yeah. is not what live and let live means. And it's yeah. like, well, you are my equal as long as you also have like, judeo-christian beliefs and as long as you maybe you don't have to be white but you definitely have to have like white cultural adaptations like you shouldn't Mm -hmm. talk with like a hood accent and Mm -hmm. unless your accent is like southern we're not here for it like there's all of these kinds of implicit understandings that while there is a lot of that theme put forward of like let everyone be who they are and, and live and let live and mind your own business it's like until someone steps a toe out of the line of the the culture that you have deemed acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think she does a good job of addressing that at all. That like some of the themes in country music are not lived out in the way they are presented. That, that is idealism in these songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. So that actually leads into my first quote that I had pulled and it's discussing more of the whiteness as it relates to distinctions between working class and middle class people. As I have mentioned, the middle class distance themselves from white working class people by branding them as immoral, uneducated, bigoted, and just generally bad. There's a part in the book, and embarrassingly, this will make it sound like I really hated the book because the quote that I had marked was a poll quote that she stole. Or like I do that too. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually found the poll quote from someone else that she had added into her research to be the most succinct way to talk about this, but I'm going to read it anyway. Yeah. So this author writes, for many cosmopolitan Americans, especially country music is bad music precisely because it is widely understood to signify an explicit claim to whiteness, not as an unmarked neutral condition of lacking or trying to shed race but as a marked foregrounded claim of cultural identity, a bad whiteness. As white music, white is in quotations here, unredeemed by ethnicity, folkloric authenticity, progressive politics, or the noblesse oblige of elite music culture, country frequently stands for the cultural badness of its inheritance. Country is, in this sense, contaminated culture, mere proximity to which entails ideological danger. So what this person is saying is that by subconsciously or consciously acknowledging the tie between whiteness and racism, Mm -hmm. the white middle class think the only way to remove yourself from that narrative is to distance yourself from your whiteness. And to then blame the working and lower class as the white people who are the racist ones. Middle class white people aren't racist or homophobic, so our whiteness isn't bad or tainted. It is the working class whiteness that is bad and tainted. And by like widening the gap in all cultural tastes, etc., they make it much safer for themselves as a class. 
Yeah, and I think what they're arguing here is that the white middle class doesn't even identify as white, right? That if you identify as race neutral, you can't be tied back to racism because you aren't white. And only mm-hmm. people who identify as white, i.e. working class white people, mm-hmm. can be connected to racism and its history and its pain and so I think that that's a really really fascinating way of looking at country music and the distaste for it from the middle class and Mm -hmm. I found that to be a really strong argument yeah and it's actually it's one of the things that I find the the least palatable about country music these days is how much it's like god and country which that is definitely something that I have kind of lost as I have become more progressive and I spend all my time in like very liberal circles. It's that like pride in being a white person. I'm much more ashamed of being a white person than I ever used to be. And (laughs) while I wouldn't say that that's like a great strategy either, because what it leads to is what we see right now where we have to blame authentic white people or like people who are proud of being white as like the bad whites Instead of just being like, you know, whiteness is good and bad, there's like, you know, we don't have to, like, villainize whiteness in order to improve our behavior. It is hard for me to listen to country music when they are very verbally proud of their whiteness because I I think it overlooks the, the very bad things that white people have done and while you shouldn't go so far on the other end of the spectrum that you're like, all white people are the devil, you also, I don't think you should go so far on the other end of the spectrum where you're like, white pride, because that is not good either. (laughs) That's actually a hate movement. So, yeah, yeah, I think uh, what makes this complicated is that, well, everything, because it's race and identity. But a part of what makes this complicated is that middle-class people are allowed to distance distance themselves from their whiteness, Mm -hmm. and then whiteness becomes the culprit. So only if you identify with whiteness can you be racist, can you be a part of the system, which we know to not be the case, and that is a a myth. But in doing so, they get to alleviate their own guilt and their own participation in this structural system yeah yeah so like country music has never done that like working class white people have not gone through that transformation where they start to villainize their own whiteness and then look for someone to put that blame on that which is what the middle class has done and they've left the blame with like white working class people and so white working class people tend to have much more of that like country pride and like pride in their like Americanness and whiteness. And I, I, I'm, I'm sad that the middle class has had to do that instead of just accepting that they have flaws and that, that they were just as much a part of the problem because what happens when you villainize the whiteness is that I think it just exasperates, exacerbates the problem in some ways. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing too is that without accepting our whiteness as middle class people, we are unable to see our privilege and then fight for people who are less privileged than us. Yeah, and so it puts us at a at a position where we are not actually doing anything positive. We're just using somebody else as a scapegoat. 
mm-hmm. then if whiteness only equals bad, then we we can't weaponize whiteness and the mm-hmm. power that it brings to make things better for other people because we're just saying it doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, and it it's it leaves people who are white and don't have a strong cultural identity because, you know, white people experienced a lot of loss of culture when we moved to different places. They it leaves them in a place where, like, what can they identify with? Because if they identify with their whiteness, that's bad, because white supremacy. Because that's been co-opted in a horrible way. But if they do the thing that the middle class has done, where they no longer identify with their whiteness in any way, and they have to, like, put whiteness as a category into, like, there's, like, bad whiteness that they don't want anything to do with, it really leaves people in a bad place of, like, well, how do I identify as a person? Like, what kinds of things can I be proud of? And I don't really have a cultural heritage other than that's what we see in the South a lot, which is like, well, the Confederacy is my heritage. And it's like, yeah, well, well, it is. And that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's accurate. But uh, yes, I agree with you. I think that we're starting to see this cultural shift from people of the middle class that they are not seeing themselves as race neutral, but they're seeing themselves as white and then reckoning with, and I want to be clear, this is the very beginning stages of all of this. Mm -hmm. I think we all have a lot more work to do, but I think we're seeing that process begin and then reconciling what whiteness means now. If you do accept the bad parts, what can be the upside or what are the good parts that we can continue to do and fight for other people? And I think it's really important for people who grow up in racist areas or with a family that Uh, instilled racist ideas that we have white people to look up to that are doing correct actions and not harming people uh, just forever and in perpetuity and I think a part of that is what you're saying is uh, you need something to latch on to to say okay if you're saying don't be like this what do Mm -hmm. I do and so having something to latch on to that's a white role model that has responded to racism in a more progressive way mm-hmm. can be really helpful. Yeah, and I think what the the white middle class did in this process of like realizing that they racism was an issue and wanting to distance themselves from it, they they went to the you should be ashamed of being white place or you should not be proud of it in any way which what i mean by like it exacerbated it was it made people who didn't hadn't come as far with that understanding of like the problems that white people have caused it made them dig deeper into their pride of whiteness they're like you can't take away the fact that i'm proud to be white so they like dug in deeper and that's i think it's widened the gap even more and i don't think the the right solution is for white people to be ashamed of being white. That is not a solution that does a shame does not fix anything. Like being white is not bad. Okay. That is a neutral thing. It is what you do with your whiteness that is good or bad. And you should not be ashamed of what you are ever. That's, that's not it. Well, and also like, it's not going to change, right? Regardless of how you feel about it, you are still perceived as white in this society, and that does come with privileges and powers. So, you know, regardless of how you feel about that, that is still a fact in America's 2021 today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I said it was 2020. (laughs) 
it feels like it's never ended. I've done that a couple times where I'm like, well, it is 2020 after all. And I'm just like, no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, okay, so that was my first quote. Okay. Do you have uh, a quote that you want to talk about? So what I'm going to talk about in this section is back to the argument she made around class. And I'm going to give a quote that I felt summarized the differences between the way middle class and working class people construct their identities of themselves very well. And this was part of her argument that I really appreciated. But again, it's going to lead into my critique of where she went with that. So the quote says, one representative study finds that middle class subjects seek to express their purportedly unique inner qualities and thereby change the world while working class subjects strive to withstand the world's pressures without themselves changing to compromise their integrity. I really love that quote because it does describe an inherent difference between the way middle class and working class people are socialized to view themselves and therefore to understand or appreciate country music. Of course, if you are raised with middle class values and identities, country music does not resonate with you as much and it sounds kind of dumb and backwards. But if you were raised with the working class values, country music resonates a lot. And there's a lot of uh, compassion and camaraderie. And it's like a salve, she mentions in the book at one point. It's like a salve for like having to live in a world that was never set up for you and, and mm -hmm. does not want to give you any legitimacy. Yeah. And I really appreciate that understanding of the differences between the classes. However, that said... Something that I think she does throughout the book too much is reduce the working class to a wholly collaborative, wholesome, good-natured, down-to-earth, live-and-let-live group of people who doesn't actually contain the multitudes that all groups and classes contain. And as we were texting about this so much, I made a joke that it reminds me of this part in 30 Rock where Jack Donaghy, the CEO of this network, is trying to find a comedian from quote unquote real America. And so they go to this like tiny town in Iowa or somewhere to like find a comedian. And it's this whole ludicrous chase. But the, the joke they keep coming back to is that there is no one part of America that is more American than the others. And yes. that is what this book makes me think of. It's like, girl, do you really think that the working class is the most American of the Americas? Like, come on. Like, you are reducing them to an identity that is just as oversimplified as you're arguing the middle class does. Yes. But just in a different way, right? Like, yeah. she's simplifying them in a different way. In a good, positive light, but that is not any less damaging than oversimplifying them in a negative light. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100% with that. My second quote actually is very similar to that. And I want to talk a bit about authenticity. The In one of the chapters, she writes a little section about the importance of being country. Uh, and actually, let me back up. It's yep. so fucking hard to, to, to frame these because... It's everything. They pop out of nowhere. Okay. It's everything. I feel like whack-a-mole with her arguments. No, I'm, I'm so like, stressed. <laughs> I don't know why this is so hard. So, 
One of the ways in which Nadine Hubbs argues that country music is unfairly critiqued Mm -hmm. is that it is most harshly critiqued for its authenticity, and it is the only genre, aside from rap, that is, she argues this. Further, she asserts that that being commercially viable was always a part of country music, and it is deeply embedded in their roots. But then, later in the book, she turns around and spends a fair amount of time talking about how important the identity of being country is to country music listeners, the white working class, and country music singers. So, I just want to read a little bit of this quote, and... Then I want to talk a lot about it. Yeah, please. (laughs) Okay. Country music is preoccupied with the theme of being country to an extent that it can indeed be characterized as an obsession. Scholars and listeners recognize this country pride theme in both country music and working class speech as a statement of working class identification and white class resistance. For working class identified listeners, the gesture contained in the being country theme is most powerfully one of naming oneself as country, redneck, or hillbilly before the dominant culture confers the same title. It points not to the self-fascination or self-loathing or any hope of magically transforming the cultural meaning of the category. Rather, the reward offered by the being country theme lies in naming oneself, thus rebuking the continual affront of middle-class interpolation. So, I actually agree with that. I think it is a resiliency tactic to say, hey, all of these things that you say we're doing differently than you, and therefore we're less than, that's what makes us great. And I think it's fair that, that to say that. However, I take a lot of issue <laughs> um, with saying that country music is only critiqued for its authenticity, because authenticity is integral to the white working class and to the genre itself. It is, in fact, one of the values she claims that the middle class is not seeing. So I take a lot of issue with that because that doesn't make any sense that How could you country music... something that you're not even aware of? Right. Okay. And also that like country music is the only genre of music that's obsessed with authenticity. Ugh. That's just not right. That's, that's incorrect. It's fully incorrect. I can think of so many examples in which authenticity shows up in other country and other music scenes namely like punk punk rock, rock exactly what's it, that's exactly like what I'm everything saying. all of those things are it's authenticity is really really important to the point that they will actually exclude people from their communities because yeah. they're not being authentic it's just it's a ridiculous statement to say that country music is the only genre of music that faces this issue because that's just not not true yeah Case in point, when I was in middle school, texting a friend on AIM Instant Messenger, uh, she asked me what kind of music I was listening to, and I was like, Simple Plan. And she was like, oh, do you you think you like Simple Plan now? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, you're a poser. And I was oh, like, yeah. what? I didn't even a know what poser? that meant. And then I had to like use Ask Jeeves to be like, what is a <laughs> Ask poser? Ask Jeeves. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then I realized that because I like wore... I don't know, an Aeropostale t-shirt and didn't have like crazy eyeliner i was a poser for liking punk liking punk rock and then i spent some time um living in spain with my cousins and i listened to simple plan constantly because i was super fucking depressed and unhappy and it it the song lyrics made my cousin so depressed that she had to force me to stop listening to it 
she was like the rule is that you have to listen to it with headphones because i can't listen to another one of these songs and it was like we had like a whole intervention because my music was depressing my cousin too much anyway (laughs) i digress (laughs) oh my gosh but no that's exactly true like you I, i cannot think of a lot of music scenes that take themselves very seriously and don't consider authenticity those are always connected so I just think that that's a ridiculous thing to say uh but I also think it's far more complicated than she allows it to be because authenticity means a lot of different things and she doesn't delve into it at all so I would almost rather her either not bring it up or make it almost the entire book because there's so much to talk about yeah like why can't you talk about authenticity in the sense that like as country music has become more and more popular within certain demographics country singers have become more and more wealthy therefore edging themselves out of the class in which they pretend to sing to so Mm -hmm. in that way authenticity is very weird and confused in country music yeah because often the the singers have zero concept of what it is like to be working class case in point what is the the garth was it garth brooks it wasn't it was um he just came out with a song called minimum wage oh yeah blake shelton thank you i was gonna bring it up if you didn't sir (laughs) sir name the minimum wage i dare you it's like it's like the um arrested development quote where she's like what could it possibly cost michael (laughs) ten (laughs) dollars it's a banana michael what could it cost ten dollars shout out to uh wait what's her name jessica she died this week oh my god no yeah jessica walter she was a fantastic comedic actress one of the best damn so rest in peace yeah ten dollars michael (laughs) but yeah i agree and i think Especially when we see country music music artists like Keith Urban, who well, okay, actually, there there are several things I want to say about this. The first is that just because someone class jumps does not mean that they lose the values that they grew up with, and so I don't agree that like because Blake Shelton is now ridiculously wealthy, he can't sing about working class values because that's still a part of who he is he never left that behind i assume i don't know this man but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i assume that's still an integral part of his identity and how he sees himself yeah and i think that that's fine but i also think that it's fair to critique that he no longer feels these the effects of economics Mm -hmm. on him because he's a millionaire Mm -hmm. and so his perspective is absolutely different than it once was. Yeah. So I also want to say that with an artist like Keith Urban, who is actually Australian and he's not even American. You're not <laughs> even a real country fan. <laughs> You're not even a real country singer. You're not even a real American, sir. You can't <laughs> sing our music. <laughs> But it's one of those things where I I feel like she's missing a a big part of her argument because Keith Urban is Australian, was able to come over to America, is very popular, and has put out many, many different albums. Mm. He still has working class fans because of what he sings about, and I would argue that the, the music itself 
is where the authenticity lies. Mm-hmm. Like the the lyrics and what they're singing about and the <clears throat> feeling of the music yeah. is far more obsessed with the authenticity than the actual person singing it. Yeah. Um, because Keith Urban obviously did not have the same upbringing that a lot right. of his songs imply that he did. Yeah. Well, and I think you're exactly correct that it's more about nailing the the themes that you're singing about the way you're presenting them and the music with which you surround them than it is about the identity of the singer themselves however with the blake shelton thing have you ever heard of a more tone deaf thing than releasing a song called minimum wage during a global pandemic when he has probably couldn't tell you any longer what the minimum wage in this country even is like that to me was um beyond the pale if you will (laughs) yes yes i agree it was obviously it sounds ludicrous when you say it all out loud like this yes i agree and it's like even if you had at one point survived on minimum wage or whatever to release a song in the current moment that talks about surviving on minimum wage it's like no come on no. come on Blake yeah come on please, please sit this you're one dating out. Gwen Stefani <laughs> yeah. what do you think you are I, I think there is a potential argument to be made that there's a difference between people within a movement or within mm-hmm. an identity critiquing authenticity versus people from the outside in, cre- in mm-hmm. critiquing that authenticity mm-hmm. so I think there's an argument to be made there she did not make this argument though <laughs> I want to be very clear. She did not do that, and she did not do it well. Um, But I do think that you could argue that country music is the only music genre in which people who don't listen to it and are not a part of the listener base critique it for its authenticity. And I think there's a lot Mm -hmm. of interesting things to explore there. Mm -hmm. But again, she didn't do that. And so to just throw it in and as like kind of a one-off thing, it's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) There's way too much to explore here for you to bring it up if you're not going to give it the complexity it deserves. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting that that happens with country music because it's clearly not the only genre of music that white middle-class people detest. I think rap is becoming way more mainstream, but especially in the 90s, it was like, oh, disgust was leveled at rap left and right. But it was never, like, argued that they weren't authentic. You know? It was like, so why is that the critique that comes to people's minds when they're listening to country music? I mean, I don't know, but you're right. She could have dug into that a lot more in the book. Or just not touched it at all, but to half touch it and drop it was like, no, no, no. Or maybe even to just say further analysis is needed on this it's beyond the scope of my research which was my favorite sentence to write in my own thesis Uh, but I think to pretend as if the arguments that she brought up against authenticity in country music were the end-all be-all of those arguments Mm -hmm. is a very insufficient way to go about it well I agree and then to to move into my final quote uh she talks it's not that she's not capable of doing a deep dive because she does a deep whole chapter dive on Gretchen Wilson's redneck woman. One could argue too deep. Uh, Yeah. One could certainly argue that. And her, I would say thesis of this chapter is to argue that redneck woman is a feminist ballad. 
that that flips the middle class moniker of oh you're a redneck and that's a bad thing into being a positive namesake and birthright of Gretchen and it's her thing like you said Kate that actually gives her power and value and because of that Nadine Hubbs argues that this is very feminist however the entirety of that song is developed out of the male gaze so everything that Gretchen Wilson says about herself in that song is through a value system that men dictated to her about what she should be. And for that reason, it is not feminine. <laughs> I, my head nearly exploded when I was reading this chapter. Yeah, I agree. And I think too that she essentially argues that femininity is a middle-class value to which I would say, what are you defining as feminine? Because she never explains that. And then, it, a way too broad of a statement in and of itself. But even if you're a working class woman, it doesn't necessarily mean that you only display masculine characteristics. And I, I think further, all of us have a mix of masculine and feminine characteristics. And we perform them in a certain way. But she never touches on the fact that there's still an expectation that as a white working class woman that you express feminine characteristics and responsibilities like having and raising children for example uh, there's no discussion of the fact that you're still expected to have all of the feminine traits you're just also expected to show and perform more masculine traits yeah and Within the context of Gretchen Wilson's song, Redneck Woman, specifically, more feminine traits are not just um, de-emphasized by highlighting her more masculine traits, they're actually devalued. Because it, it reminds me of what we talked about early on, where not only are like femi feminine things are considered less than, uh, feminine mm -hmm. pursuits... And she does that exact thing in this song. The first line is, Well, I ain't never been the Barbie doll type. No, I can't swig that sweet champagne. I'd rather drink beer all night. So what she's doing in the first three lines is saying that women who do look more like Barbies are not as good or that she, like that's not the standard. And it shouldn't be, but it's like through a negative spin. Yeah, well, it's, it's not... Uh... Whether it should or should not be is not really the point, right? Like, she's saying that this uh, this other way to be a woman is bad, which yes. is not inclusive feminism at all. Yes, because then and he, she reinforces that sentiment with the next two lines about the she can't drink champagne, she'd rather have beer, to suggest that a woman who at a bar would order a, a sweet drink or a champagne or whatever is like frou-frou, too girly girl, I don't fuck with that. Like, and some very sexist terms like silly or ditzy or uh, not worthy of being valued because they don't display these masculine characteristics. Because again, the masculine characteristics are the only ones of value. Yeah, it reminds me of this thing I mentioned to you, Kate, that is going around on various social media platforms that's referred to as the pick me girl. And it's a girl who we've all experienced this and or done this as women where someone, a woman, 
criticizes and devalues an interest or a drink that you ordered or the way you behaved in front of men in order to minimize your feminineness and make themselves more a part of the masculine group to therefore be valued and picked by the men as one of the club. And it's done at the, at the specifically at the expense of other women and their behaviors. So although it can come off as, oh, I'm just like trying to be valued as equal to men, the way you are achieving that is by devaluing the women around you instead of being like, hey, all women are valid and equal here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what this entire song reminds me of. And so for a woman to have written a chapter of a book about how this is a feminist icon drives me batshit insane. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You might be wondering why we've gone this long without talking about the queerness of the book <laughs> and the queerness uh, and the queer arguments that she makes in terms of country music. And let me just share with you that that's because she barely makes an argument about mm -hmm. queers and country music. She reserves most of her analysis on queerness to the very last chapter of the book, to which she makes a, an argument using the song Fuckin' Nita Bryant as a case study. I found this severely lacking mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is that it was a song that was not released widely, so most people mm -hmm. didn't even know the song existed. It was definitely not a super popular song, and therefore should not be your your one and only case study of talking about queer values in country music. Well, because it didn't reach the masses in a way to shape the values of country music. It, impossible. Yeah, people didn't listen to this song, so yeah. why are we discussing this as something that was pivotal? I do not know. Yeah. The other part of it is that it's a very complicated situation. The country music artist, David Allen Coe, is singing about Anita Bryant, who was a very proud anti-gay activist, but in the song, he writes lyrics that are very much devaluing gayness and essentially saying that it's okay to be gay in a prison context because there are no other women around. And so that's the only way that it's, it's okay to be gay. And then it's also only if you are the top of mm -hmm. the relationship or not even relationship, but just the sexual encounter. Yeah. And it's just like a, a very ridiculous case study for arguing that uh, prejudice against gay people doesn't exist in country music or in the white working class. Right. And it's like, I think the reason she does it is because from the name, you can tell the singer is saying, fuck this anti-gay activist. But that doesn't mean that he isn't homophobic. Right. And that, that it's so weird because it's like, that's the point that I always try to make about country music is even when it is performing allyship, its inherent value system is homophobic because it is misogynistic and those two are integral to one another. So yeah. and also, it's like, like ma'am, you proved the point. <laughs> like what? Also like the lyrics themselves, like they use yeah. the F word to describe gay people. So yeah, it's not yes. exactly a sterling example of somebody being an ally. Like, I'm sorry, no. I don't see it. And, and then 
the bombshell is that you find out that David Allen Coe killed a gay man or a man in prison who attempted to have a sexual encounter with him where David Allen Coe would have received. And he was like, no to that. That's too gay or I whatever. And so to rebut that advance, he killed the man. And so it was yeah. like, well, I think there's a lot of complicated things around that. Like, if he was not giving consent, he had every right to defend himself against that encounter, obviously. But it's like, she buried the whole lead of the thing that, like, this man who wrote a... Oh, oh yeah. Like, a pro-gay allyship <laughs> yeah. anthem. Yes. That he somehow is, like... But, I don't know. Again, I just found it very lacking because mm-hmm. she just doesn't allow things to be as complicated as they are. Like... Everything that we just talked about, that's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that you can unpack there. And she didn't yeah. unpack nearly I any of it. it. She stuck strictly to the lyrics of the song and didn't even, in my perspective, do a really good job of evaluating those, honestly. Yeah, and I think the you could say her unintentional takeaway from that whole chapter is that the relationship between gayness and country music is incredibly complicated. Yeah, and that wasn't her argument, so no. she <laughs> obviously failed yeah. in her argument. Uh, um, but I agree with you. I think that was also my takeaway mm-hmm. in the most generous sense. Uh, but I also felt like it was very difficult to have a takeaway because her argument was so muddled and confusing. And yes. And one yeah. thing she tries to do, she sets this up in the introduction, and then she doesn't get back to it until finally this last chapter. She suggests that... In the early 1900s, in working class culture, gayness was much more accepted and common and this kind of transactional, like, yes, men sometimes have sex with men sorts of thing, and it's this isn't an issue. And it was the middle class who had the most, like, disgust and fear and anti-gay sentiments. And as they we progressed through the century, we saw those things flip as the middle class needed a way to distance themselves from the like guilt of their whiteness and to have like blamelessness in society. And so they pinned those kinds of anti-black, anti-gay sentiments on the working class as a scapegoat. And she's trying to suggest and and argue that like that was that's the wrong framing. And in fact, the working class has been much less homophobic than the middle class throughout the ages. And whether that's true or not, I have no idea because she did not make the argument complete. It was like she just suggested it and then never supported it properly. Right. And I think, yeah, that was really well spoken and really well explained. I also think there's an issue of uh, there's a lack of discussion of the fact that gay people can and do obviously exist in the white working class uh, areas mm-hmm. and rural areas mm-hmm. and can coexist amicably with the people who also live there and mm-hmm. are straight. And there can also be homophobia that they experience. It yeah. doesn't have to be one or the other. And I think there seems to be a, a glaring omission of a discussion there mm-hmm. that these things can coexist. Mm-hmm. And you can be a woman who's expected to uh, have masculine traits or are allowed to perform masculine traits and also experience misogyny those don't have to be two separate things so Mm -hmm. I found it lacking in that way as well well and I to go to your point about how it's much more complicated it's really difficult for me to respect or 
trust an argument about class and queerness and whiteness in America without addressing the elephant in the room, which is the religious system from which those things came. And, and she, I don't think she mentions faith in more than a brief, like, you know, God sense throughout this book at all. It does not factor into her argument. And for me, it's like, the value system of country music came from Judeo-Christian values. You can't address one without talking about the other in any way, ma'am. That's bonkers. Yeah, I I agree. I think that was <laughs> a really necessary part of the discussion that just yeah. isn't there. And, I mean, and she sure obviously why. talks about race, but not in the way that you would need to to really dissect the class dynamics. So again, it's like this huge piece of the puzzle with what you're trying to do too much, but because you've brought all these things in, another thing you would need to talk about is, is race. And, and it doesn't come up as much as I think it would need to, to support our arguments. I agree. By doing too much, you're not doing enough. Yeah. Because you're not fully making any of these arguments. It's kind of halfway, all of them. And then they all turn out to be very ineffective and very weak arguments and dissatisfying to the reader because Mm -hmm. in the intro you think like well dang this is gonna be i don't know how you're gonna make this argument but i'm excited to find out and then it's like oh you just didn't make the argument oh you just didn't make the argument okay (laughs) got it it. (laughs) that makes sense (laughs) uh so did you have a this sounds like a ridiculous thing to ask you after we just spent so much time talking about all the questions we had about this book but did you have a question for me i had so many that we've already discussed (laughs) i have this question that it's going to take like we'll go on a journey together but you stay with me it's it's more of a philosophical thing and it's really fun so in graduate school we always talked about this essay called is endymion gay historical interpretation and sexual identities in Girardet by the art historian abigail solomon godot Uh, I studied 18th and 19th century French art. And so this was a painting made in 1791. This, this essay is about a painting made in 1791 by an artist named Girardet. And it's this Greek myth endymion. And in the painting, he's reclining in this classically kind of feminine pose. There's light coming down on his face. He has this effeminate body of a young boy, which is very common in many of these types of paintings. And it's, it gets into the homoeroticism that was happening at that time. There's a lot of questions around like gayness and queerness in relation to these painters and their social lives. And we read this essay and my friend joked all the time about how it was, she read it in this term of like sassy, like poking fun at our obsession with gayness where the, as if the author was like, isn't Demian gay? Like, it was just like, <laughs> like a guys, who gives a shit? Move on. Like, is this really <laughs> the most interesting thing? And it, I think there's a lot of value to talking about like queerness in those worlds because it was erased in many ways and it really existed. But I bring this up because this thought that I kept having as I was reading this book and when I was trying to come up with a question is, is country music gay? <laughs> And the reason I keep, like, thinking about this is because so much of country music, when it's, like, a male singer, um, they will have lyrics that you're like, dude, this could go either way. Like, there's one song in particular where the singer is talking about, like, 
being thankful that the last man that the girl he is with now dated mistreated her and he's like kind of want to buy him a drink kind of want to push him up against a wall and it's like oh you don't say that where is this going and it's like what he's saying is like i kind of want to thank him and i kind of want to beat him up at the and same I kinda time wanna bang him. <laughs> i kind of want to bang i kind of want to kiss him it's like this is so fucking hilarious but the reason i'm bringing up my question of is country music gay is because it's like why am i so personally obsessed with finding the gayness in country music so that i can make fun of them for it like it it should not be a need of mine to point out that this clearly straight needs to be for his masculinity man is actually gay like that is not a joke that i need to be making any longer as a person in society like (laughs) also i'm sure there have been gay country music singers yeah again have probably just been erased because i would argue it's not always a safe space to be gay as a country music singer which has a lot to do with those values that we talked about right yes and it's not a safe place for men to be men in a non-toxic way like yeah the response to like a guy mistreating your current girlfriend should not be that you like need to beat him up or thank him he shouldn't factor into your consciousness at all like who cares you know but there's this like weird territorial thing of like she's mine now and i want to thank you for that that you missed this great opportunity and oh no also i kind of want to beat you up because i'm a man Um, well i would say it's probably also part like i i think when we hear anyone being dismissive of other people it becomes very uh compelling to paint them as a hypocrite in that and that well the reason you hate gay people is because you're actually gay and you have internalized homophobia and that's not just like a country music myth that's a myth that everybody participates in and perpetuates and obviously it's not true but there is this huge uh idea that if you are a politician that's anti-gay that you're actually gay yourself yeah but it can also be the case that people are just shitty homophobic people like they don't have to be gay themselves and have internalized homophobia mm-hmm. they can also just be shitty homophobes like yeah well, and like that true. exists too <laughs> yeah well and the the reason the, the reason i think it is genuinely problematic to be making kinds of jokes like this where you're like this person is actually gay is is because it suggests that there is a right and wrong way to be a man. For example, I there's a few conservative women that I'm aware of who have like YouTube channels and their husbands happen to be much more effeminate than mainstream men tend to be. Not because that's right or wrong, but just if you're basing it off of a cultural standard. And there's a lot of jokes about how their husbands are closeted because of their feminine mannerisms, because they wish the spenders, because they wax their mustache, like whatever it is. And what that says is that if you're a man, you can't have feminine qualities, which once again suggests that feminine qualities are bad and make you gay. And that is why I think making the gay joke is not appropriate and why I'm telling my brain to stop trying to make jokes about country singers who are pushing men up against the walls. <laughs> Go for it, I say. Take take your sexual frustrations out. 
well, yeah. don't do that. I take, I take well, that right back. <laughs> take it back on the table. Don't take your sexual frustrations out. Let them simmer With inside consent. you until you implode. <laughs> Like, That's what I have to do. Out with consent. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Uh, what am I even talking about? Anyway. Honestly, I didn't even have a question because I had so many questions mm-hmm. I couldn't narrow it down. Well, my so, question is and continues to be: Is country music gay? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. Definitively yes. <laughs> anyway. Thank you to Dolly Parton for being the inspiration for all of the best drag queens. Okay, so I was going to rate this um, by giving it the most potential, least actualized award at the CMAs, the Country Music Awards. Because I didn't want to be too harsh, but also it's not good. And a lot more could have and should have been done with this book. So mine is two fingers of bourbon that someone poured out of an old Gatorade bottle that was rolling around the floorboards of their truck for several days in the hot Georgia sun. It's gotta be SoCo. Tell me it's Southern Comfort. Obviously. (laughs) Two fingers out of five fingers. (laughs) And two middle fingers out of five fingers. Two middle fingers of so warm orange tinge flavored SoCo. Because it was an orange-flavored Gatorade bottle. Flipping people off is a working-class value, Molly. (laughs) Is it ever. (laughs) Okay, so we combined our pop culture pairing this time around, and we created a Spotify playlist of some of our very favorite country music songs. And Molly is going to highlight just one of the songs that she added to the playlist, I'm going to talk a little bit about my favorite one that's on there, and then uh, you will be able to enjoy it. I will put the link in the show notes. So with that, I will turn it over to you, Molly. We called the playlist Anything Including Country as a rebuttal to the cultural Anything But Country. So thanks to Kate's genius for that one. Anything (laughs) Including Country. I put lots of songs on there that I love, but the one that I wanted to talk about is called Long Haul by Ian Munsick. It's a song I just heard recently and will listen to till the day I die. It captures all the things I love most about country music, including horse and coyote themes, canyon and like long haul themes. Girl, give me a long haul theme till now until death do us part. Um, I'm just going to read the lyric that is my favorite that really like pulls me in and makes me want to keep listening to this. It says, I ain't afraid of the slow burn and one thing's for sure. It's good to make a good thing last. Love it. Cries. Bursts in tears. Yeah. Gets me right into the, the old heart. Very nostalgic to me. It's, one of my favorite things about country music is how optimistic it is in ideas of love and longevity and and that life can be good when you make it good and you appreciate the things that you have even if they're simple things so think i think this song really does that well and i love it yeah i love that the song that i want to talk about is last of my kind by jason isabel 
so in addition to being a heartbreakingly beautiful song I feel like this song also demonstrates a disbelonging in the world that no longer that the world no longer accepts their kind of cultural currency which I think had hubs stuck to that argument could have been really effective yeah again it's one of the things that like resonated the most yeah I love this song because I also understand what it's like to move to a place in which your cultural currency or cultural capital no longer feels like it's worth anything and I think that what he talks about here is something that comes through on an individual level in terms of disbelonging. But I think it's also a pretty good stand-in in terms of how most white working class people feel in this moment and have felt for quite some time, which is overlooked and under... What is the word I'm looking for? Underestimated. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's my song. It's, yeah, it's just so beautiful. And uh, Jason Isbell, is that, am I mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. He is such a brilliant lyricist. Oh, yeah. Just, you put, an, Kate put another one on there that's called um, If We Were Vampires, and it, dude. Also heartbreaking. That song is so beautiful. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. I agree. Well, I think that's all for this book. We have the next one coming up is that we're reading is called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat by Aubrey Gordon. She is known online as your fat friend and she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. She also has a podcast called Maintenance <clears throat> Phase in which she debunks health and wellness uh, fads, which my god did the world need that (laughs) oh my god it's so good it just it's so satisfying to listen to and we'll get to talk about so much of my drama surrounding dieting and i i can't wait to unpack that for you all i love that we keep using the word unpack it's such a grad school term let's just unpack that let's just at least we're not saying drill down kate oh god it could be so much worse worse. (laughs) i had a person break up with me recently and they were like anyway we can stay friends and if you want to level set about any of this and i was like get your goddamn tech bro language out of your breakup text to me sir oh my it wasn't a breakup it was like we've been talking for four months and i don't know what to call that but breakup is the word that i can use to summarize this is your podcast thing. you can use whatever word you want to use what if he listens to it and texts me and is like bitch we weren't even dating and i'm like i know but i didn't know what to call it and i'm still upset about it and i would like to level set about it <laughs> <laughs> actually well, as it turns out i would like to drill down on how disappointed like... i am in your communication skills. i would very much like to drill down on why you're annoying <laughs> fucking idiot <laughs> what i digress <laughs> anyway don't you want to date me i yell mean things about you <laughs> but i digress uh tune in again next time for more of our bullshit